I mean, I used to sell Voss water in the nightclubs for $10 a bottle. <laughs> and I remember selling 10 bottles to people as they would come in, $100 of water, and they wouldn't open a single bottle because they're drinking champagne or vodka yeah. instead. So I think there was just something so stark in the contrast of people don't have the most basic need for human life. And then the excess on the other end, we charge $10 <laughs> for water that doesn't even go opened. Welcome to A Better Life with Brandon Turner. That is me, where world-class guests share their wisdom on building a better life. Join me as we explore the habits, the actions, and the beliefs that have guided their journey with the aim of helping you apply those lessons to your own. Scott Harrison, thanks for coming on the show. What's going on? This will be fun. Dude, I I gotta tell you, I may, I may have told you this on the phone when I when I spoke with you a long time ago, but I'll say it again now, and then I'll actually get into the podcast. Okay. So I, a year ago, decided to start this thing called the Better Life Tribe, yep. and I decided at that moment, due to a lot of circumstances, I was gonna make the whole thing a nonprofit in some level, uh, give away all the money. And I said to a buddy at that time, I said, you know, of all the people in the world that I wanna meet, the one person, I was at dinner, I said, the one person I want to meet more than anybody else is Scott Harrison from Charity Water. Okay. <laughs> and I said, because I think that guy knows how to run a, a nonprofit better than anybody I know. And I I had read, you know, Thirst and I, I knew a bit of what you had done. And the next day I'm on the phone with John Rulin. Yes. Right. And, yes, and yes. he says, yeah, I was just Giftology. hanging out. Yeah, yeah, Giftology. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, I was just hanging out at my buddy Scott's house the other day. Uh, you know, Scott, Scott Harrison. I was like, shut up. Like of all the people <laughs> in the world, the next day, and that has been the story of the last year of my life has just been providence after providence happening to uh, bring us to where we are. So I'm excited this and moment. I'm going to say it's God or Nashville, Tennessee. We made it. So I know you obviously as a founder of one of uh, the most impressive uh, nonprofits, charities, whatever you want to call it, doing massive good in the world, and that's Charity okay. Water. So I know you as that. I know you uh, have a story before that though. So let's go there. So yeah, I was a degenerate. Degenerate. All right. Tell us, so tell maybe, us about uh, that. So I, I'll start before that. I think three acts to my life. Childhood, I think, is important. So I was born in Philadelphia, a very middle-class family. When I was four, we moved into, uh, I remember this very ugly gray four-bedroom house at the end of a cul-de-sac. And my dad wanted to get closer to his new job to reduce his commute so he could be a present father and have a big family. So that was the impetus for the move. And what we didn't know when we moved in in the dead of winter was that the house came with a carbon monoxide gas leak. Oh, geez. So we all start getting these headaches. Uh, it was also advertised as an energy efficient house, which is great as long as your you know, house isn't leaking carbon monoxide. So we get these <laughs> keeps weird- Keeps all the bad things out. Yeah, and then the also keeps in. the poison yeah. in, in this case. So we all start Ooh. getting these headaches. And then New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across the bedroom and she collapses unconscious. So she is the canary in the coal mine. This leads to blood tests, uh, finally the discovery of massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. And then my dad with an HVAC friend actually ripped out the heater that was causing the leak and he threw it out uh, on the curb. And I remember, you know, this kind of mangled heater, you know, on the front curb, but the damage to my mom's body was irreparable. Uh, dad and I actually bounced back. We were only sleeping in the house at night. She was 24 seven mm. unpacking boxes, putting paintings on the wall and sucking in poison gas. How long was she doing that for him? A few months, Okay, short time. So what happened to her 
immune system was it just lost its ability to process anything chemical from that point. So the entire world made her sick. The easiest way to describe mom's condition is my mom is allergic to the world. Mm -hmm. So if it's carfumes or I remember the ink from books would make her sick. Really? The smell of print, soap, gas stove, car pollution, you know, anything that was maybe not natural would just knock her down. And she would get migraines, she would get hypertension, she'd break out in hives. So family planning stopped first. Uh, she wound up miscarrying what would have been my sister. And then she moved into this life of isolation to try to avoid exposure to anything. So I remember signs on the outside of the house, keep out, keep out, chemically sensitive person. We eventually found uh, the safest space for her in the house, which was a tile covered bathroom. I remember there was aluminum foil on top of the doors and the tile, and she slept on an army cot that had been washed in baking soda 20 times. So just, it was just weird. Yeah, This happened when I was four. So I grew up as a caregiver, helping to take care of mom, helping to do the cooking and the cleaning and, you know, almost my dad's partner in caregiving. And I was raised in the church. So my parents had a really authentic Christian faith. The only thing they would both credit for making the marriage survive this, this trauma. For about a decade, they didn't sleep in the same room because she was allergic to, yeah. to him as well, allergic to me. And maybe just one other memory from childhood, she wore a mask for the next 45 years. So I unfortunately have four plus decades of never seeing her face. Wow. And all too familiar with 3M's, you know, large suite of N95s <laughs> to charcoal masks to all of it. So if you'd asked me what I was gonna be growing up, I would have said, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm gonna cure my mom and I'm gonna cure sick people like her. I didn't smoke, I didn't drink, I didn't sleep around, I didn't use bad language. I played piano in the worship band on Sundays and was on my way to, you know, Johns Hopkins. Yeah. So that was act one. <laughs> I did not become a doctor. At 18, you know, I lived out this unbelievably cliche rebellion story. And I just woke up one day and said, now it's my turn to have some fun. Too many rules in the church, too many things you can't do. Religion is oppressive. And I wanted to explore the opposite of the sheltered life. And I think in some ways, I felt like I'd lost my childhood and maybe even subconsciously. Yeah. And I wanted to go and, and play. Yeah. It wasn't very fun, you know, growing up in this environment. So I moved to New York City. I joined a band, a rock band. I grew my hair down to my shoulders, which was a terrible idea, looking at pictures now. <laughs> and I'm convinced we're gonna become rich and famous. We're gonna be opening up for you two in a matter of months at Madison Square Garden. Clearly. <laughs> the ambition was there. The, uh, the reality <laughs> was disconnected from that. So we all broke up a couple months later because the band just hated each other. We couldn't get along. But I had learned just in these first few months after moving to New York City at 18, 19, that the people on the other side of the business were really the ones making the money. Mm. It was the promoters that would take all that money, the door, keep the liquor sales, and then toss $100 to the band to split five ways. Yep. And we'd barely get our gas covered. And when the band broke up, I found this guy who was a, a promoter to take me under his wing as a little bit of an apprentice and wound up then learning the business of promoting nightclubs and then working to fill 40 different nightclubs over the next decade. Wow. So, so I... What does that mean to like promote a nightclub? So here's, here's the business. So there are clubs that are opening and closing all the time. The promoter is tasked with bringing the most 
beautiful, rich, famous people to these clubs. And for that, you might get 10, 15, 20% of the gross. So it's an asset light model. You don't need to open the club. You don't need to get a bunch of investors. You just need to develop a list of people who want to go where you tell them the hot place to go is. Mm. And that lasts about a year. Everybody is, is comfortable going to one club for about a year and then they tire of the club and then you move on to the next one. So it's really about building a list and trying to get the celebrities, you know, the right DJs, and then the guys who have Amex black cards who can throw down $1,000 on a bottle of champagne to impress the girls yeah. or to impress the celebrities. So you have to kind of put all this together. And it was a wild life flying around to Fashion Week, you know, to Paris and Milan and London, vacationing in Buzios, Brazil, or Punta del Esta in South America. It was other people's money, you know, other people's private planes. Other people would pick up the $17,000 dinner tab because we brought yeah. the, the girls, we brought the models. We would joke, you know, as models and bottles was the phrase that, that was coined at the term. If you could get the models, then the bottles would flow. And maybe no surprise, you know, one by one, all of the things that I said I would never do as that young Christian kid yeah. started with smoking, then drinking, then drugs, then pornography, then strip clubs, then gambling, and just kind of this deep, slowish descent into absolute depravity and selfishness and decadence. And a typical night for me, 10 years into this, would look like dinner at 10, the club at 12, a seedy after hours Coke joint at five. And then somewhere around noon, I would take Ambien to come down knowing I had to wake up at 7 p.m. and do it all over again. Jeez. And that would yeah. be four or five nights a week. All right, so I gotta ask a couple questions. I wanna go back a little bit and, and then get into that. As somebody raised in a, I don't know if strict is the right word, but like conservative Christian family, yeah. right? Maybe a little sheltered, like I was similar. And I have a lot of friends that grew up in that kind of environment. And a lot of them have a similar story. I mean, not maybe quite as, as nuts yeah. as becoming a club promoter in New York, but there's this real thing that happens. Sometimes it feels like when we shelter our kids and then they go almost like rebound the other way, right? You obviously had some deeper trauma with the, with the mom. How do we prevent our kids from going down those routes? Like how do we, how do you balance raising kids that are not sheltered yet protected? You know, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Like I got two, you know, two young ones and- yeah, it, Our kids are yeah. almost the same age. Yeah, it terrifies uh, me. <laughs> I don't know that this is the right answer, but my answer is three letters, fun, mm. fun. I just am trying to expose my kids to fun that is clean fun. Yeah. You know, fun you don't have to feel guilty about. And there's a whole lot of that in the world. Yeah. I mean, my son did 20 flights his first year. So we just said, we're going to start traveling with our kids early on. Yeah. And, you know, they are going to be exposed to experiences that, you know, whether it's hiking in Zion or, hey, dad's got to go speak in Iceland. Hey, you're coming. You know, you're coming with dad. And I tell the conference, I need two tickets instead of one. So there's a lot of, you know, and, and I think my dad always bristles when he hears me say that my childhood wasn't fun. He's yeah. like, I tried to give you as much yeah, fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't really that fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think sometimes, you know, to a fault, like I'm the roller coaster guy. I mean, we go to, we'll jump on a plane and we'll just go ride roller coasters and I buy the fast pass. Yeah. And I want to make sure we can ride 30 roller coasters in one day yeah. because you feel great having fun, you know, riding 30 roller coasters. 
Yeah. You know, that, that at least is my you know, trying to get them exposed to things that bring life that are that take them out of the box that are exciting. You know, that's not smoking, drinking, yeah. drugs, uh, shallow relationships, yeah. et cetera. I think that's a I think that's a great answer. I mean, like knowing yeah, knowing the kids that were the worst off were the ones that not only were they sheltered, but they were sheltered and contained. So they right. didn't do anything else. So then they see the fun, especially when you start watching movies and you're like, oh, people are out there having fun, doing cool stuff. That sounds like a better life. So they go out and do that. But in reality, yeah, if they can enjoy their childhood and say, I had a great life without that garbage. I also overcompensate. I think so many of us as, as parents, you know, yeah, I yeah. probably am triple dosing yeah. the, the fun, but. Yeah. All right. All right. So. Club Promore, did you lose your faith during that time? Like, do you still believe in God? Where, where was that at? That's such an interesting question. I certainly lost my obedience. <laughs> <laughs> at no point during those 10 years did I go to church. Did I pray? Did I give? I was not generous. So I wasn't living, I mean, even an iota of the Christian faith. So I think my actions turned 180 degrees on a dime. I don't know that I lost my faith. I don't know that I became an atheist or an agnostic, I think I just didn't want to follow the faith. Mm. And in some ways, you know, 10 years later, the story, there's the short version and the long version. I mean, the, the short version is I had health issues one day and like half my body went numb, <laughs> maybe because I was living such a <laughs> destructive lifestyle as described before. But I remember in that moment being convinced that I was going to die that I had a brain tumor or some terrible disease. And I was immediately confronted with the existential question, do I believe any of this stuff? Do I believe in heaven and hell? Do I believe in that once saved, always saved Baptist sermon that I heard, you know, that you know, just because I was baptized at 13 and I knew what I was doing, would that withstand the 10 year lifestyle of selfishness and depravity? I, I wasn't sure, I probably yeah. didn't think so at that point. And it really led me, the health issues kind of resolved on their own. I mean, nobody could, nobody could find anything wrong with me uh, medically, but in a way like the damage was done. Yeah. And it really started this journey where I was trying to find my way back home. I really feel like the prodigal son story fit me because it was 10 years of spending all the money, blowing the inheritance, but it looked good. Yeah. I mean, it was jets and models and, you know, I, I had a grand piano in my New York apartment. I had a Rolex, I drove a BMW. I knew famous people I kind of had access to this life that others would find alluring, but it was really the pigsty. Yeah. You know, it was, I was morally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I was emotionally bankrupt. And I was pushing that off for so long until I couldn't push it off. And then I had to come face to face with that reality. Yeah. And then I wanted to come home. I missed so many of those things that I had rejected growing up. And that allowed me to, I guess, maybe opt back into faith in a, in a different way, but not totally different. You know, I probably took 80% of it. Yeah. Do you feel like you, there was like a moment, like when, when the numbness set in, you're like, this is like, I'm 180 right here. My life is different. Or was this over a period a of time? Months. It took a couple months. Where you're like, I really got to change something. And yeah, it took a couple months and there was this night once where, well, so, so at that moment I started praying again okay. and I started visiting churches. And at the time the churches in New York City, they met in fluorescent lit basements of public schools. 
you know, the two PV speakers stuck yeah, on yeah. the pole, <laughs> you know, the one, I just sounded terrible. A lot of khakis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wore all black like yeah, yeah. 100% of the time. So it felt a little dissonant, yeah. but I was trying. And I remember trying to go back to some of the teaching that I remember, you know, like I remember listening to Tim Keller and reading C.S. Lewis again. I tried right. to find my way back, but the environment didn't change. So I was still promoting nightclubs for a living. I'm still spraying bottles of champagne from the DJ booth over the 100 people that are kind of underneath the DJ booth. So it was an interesting time of this push-pull where I wasn't really successful at either thing. I wasn't successful at coming back to faith, but I also wasn't very successful at being a degenerate anymore <laughs> because the fun was taken out of it. Yeah. So I was trying to smoke less and drink less and nothing was really working. It was like a limbo. Yeah. All right. So at this point, did your parents, when you started coming back, were they cheering you on? Were they open arms? Were they reluctant to accept the fact that you might be serious about it? Where were, where were their- My poor yeah. parents. <laughs> I mean, for a decade, they watched their only son yeah. just- Because that's got to have been horrible for them. It was terrible for them. Yeah. And they're, they're deep people of faith. So they were praying. I mean, they had- multiple prayer chains going, <laughs> praying the prodigal home. Yeah. You know, I used to joke that, and I met some of them, little old ladies were locked up in prayer closets for Scott Harrison, <laughs> you know, wearing holes in the carpet with their knees, just <laughs> trying to pray Chuck and Joan's son home. So, you know, I joke about that now, but I mean, I think that I believe that had a, a decade of prayers had played a part. Yeah. for sure, in, in me coming home. So, you know, I, I struggled for a little bit. Then there was this one event where I fired somebody from a job at a nightclub for stealing. They wound up coming after me the next night uh, with a threat, like a death threat. And in the nightclub business, you get your life threatened all the time because you're constantly turning people away from the clubs, mm -hmm. which embarrasses them. But this felt a little edgier than, you know, the kind of run of the mill, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna <laughs> shoot you and death. kill you. Yeah, normal the normal threat. threats. Yeah. And... I bailed. I remember renting this cobalt blue Ford Mustang uh, from Newark Airport for a month, grabbing a Bible, grabbing a bottle of Dewar's, grabbing a carton of Marlboro Reds. So I smoked two packs a day for 10 years and just heading north. Like if you'd asked me, I was just going north. I had no idea. And I'm listening to sermons and I'm reading the Bible and I'm you know drinking the, the Dewar's at night and I'm smoking. And you know, God really started to work in my heart and in my life. And I remember coming across the story of Lot and in no way was I a righteous man, but like <laughs> Lot was stuck in this kind of really impossibly debauched environment as described in the Bible. And God sent angels to just like rip him out of there and snatch him and say, we got to go right now. I think I needed that. I needed that you know, we got to go right now. You got to get out of clubs right now because this this will be the death of you. Uh, or you're just going to fail in this terrible middle land, you know, for, for such a long time. You're going to fail and flail. So I think that threat was really the the impetus. It took me north. And then I just started having this conversation with God, you know, that was cigarette and, uh, and doers fueled. I can't believe I drank such bad scotch. <laughs> I was like, come on. Uh, yes, you need to get some Macallan or something. But I, I, exactly, <laughs> I <know>. right? <laughs> like a 25, yeah, Macallan, Macallan 25. 25. Yeah. I just remember having this conversation with God and I got the idea to tithe one of the 10 years that I had selfishly wasted and see if I could be useful hmm. to God and to others. And this led me to an internet dial-up cafe 
I remember they were Dell and Hewlett Packard, you know, gray computers kind of stacked up those towers on Moosehead Lake in Maine, because I got as far as Maine with my little rental Ford Mustang. And I started applying from this internet cafe to these famous charities or humanitarian organizations I had tangentially heard of over the years, not had given to, not had volunteered, but, oh, I've heard of Save the Children. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of Oxfam, <laughs> World Vision, Sam's Purse, uh, the Red Cross. And I'm sitting there looking for opportunities and putting in these applications. And you know, maybe no surprise to anybody listening, I'm denied yeah. by all these organizations because Doctors Without Borders is looking for doctors, <laughs> not club promoters. So no one had any idea you know, what to do with a promoter. I mean, it's a very niche skill. Yeah. And as the rejection letters came in over the next few weeks, I just remember being so deflated. You know, Here, I thought this was a good idea. I'm ready and no one will take me. And I was very fortunate that this one organization who initially had denied my application was about to start their humanitarian mission without this role filled. So they had to go back to the rejection letters <laughs> and they found my resume <laughs> and they called me and they said, we're not gonna just agree to take you on, but we will meet you. We'll give you a chance to interview. And they were, it was a big hospital ship, a group called Mercy Ships that operated this 522 foot converted cruise liner turned mm. hospital ship. And the ship was in Germany. And I went to go meet them in Germany, Bremerhaven, Germany, and convinced them that I really did want to serve God. I really did want to serve a mission greater than myself. And I would not throw any wild parties on the hospital ship and corrupt any of the young nurses. <laughs> so I convinced them that my, my heart had changed. And they took me on. This is kind of a fun detail. They said, well, we're going to the poorest country in the world for the mission, a place called Liberia in West Africa. I'd never even heard of Liberia. I mean, I couldn't have found it on a map. And I had to pay them $500 a month. <laughs> you had to pay to be on the You had to the pay to be on the ship. Yeah. So this is one of the ways they raise money is they get all of the volunteers to also come up with 500 bucks a month in cash mm. for our own room and board and food. And so in some ways it really felt like the perfect opposite of my life. And I knew at that time that a pivot was not in order. I mean, I really needed to change everything. Yeah. And this was the opportunity. So it happened very quickly. Uh, a couple weeks later, I am walking up this gangway of a massive hospital ship with 350 volunteer crew to sail away to a continent I've never set foot on and sail away to a new life. And what do, you, what do they do on Mercy Ships? It's bringing the best doctors and surgeons in the world to people who can't afford medical interventions and also operating in countries where there are no surgical theaters yeah. that would meet standards. So they bring people on this massive hospital ship and then set them loose you know, with completely transformed lives. I don't remember the exact stat. It's in your book though. You mentioned something along the lines of, it really just like shook me when I saw it. It was like in America, I think it's like one out of 300 people. There's a doctor for like one out of 300 people. Yeah. And it was like one out of a hundred thousand or yeah, something crazy 50, like that. 50,000, one for 50,000. 50, yeah. I mean, that's just a shocking disparity between. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it blew my mind. I'm like one out of 300 and one out of 50,000. Well, Liberia at the time had just come out of a 14 year civil war. So there was this terrible guy called Charles Taylor who had decimated the country using children, uh, he built an army of children. And when he finally was thrown out, he left the country with no electricity anywhere in the country, no running water, no working sewage system, 
and no mail system. So it was just debilitated. And then yes, one doctor for every 50,000 yeah. people. Yeah, wild. All right, so tell me about Dr. Gary and that kind of his impact on your life. Well, I should say that the night before I joined the mission, I go out with a bang. <laughs> I think I smoked 60 cigarettes. <laughs> um, you know, now as legend has it, apparently I turned up reeking of alcohol and cigarettes <laughs> as I surrendered my passport. But I really knew that I would have to leave that all on land. And there was something so prophetic or symbolic about walking up the gangway, you know, the gangway gets pulled up and then sailing away mm. and being able to change everything in that moment. And I kind of wanted to leave all the vice on land. Yeah. So I never had another cigarette again, never gambled again, never touched Coke or any of that stuff again. I never looked at a pornographic image again. I mean, I, I wrote a list of yeah. like never touch. I drink a little bit. I, I do have a, <laughs> a weakness for craft IPAs and, uh, and a little bit of wine, but it was such an extreme cold turkey moment not to over-spiritualize it, but I, I almost felt like I was given this new set of clothes. Mm. If you go back to the pig pen yeah, you know, yeah. analogy, like I have brand new white clothes on and I didn't want to get the clothes dirty. Yeah, And I knew that I could, and you know, there'd be grace for that. Like I could slip and you know, I'm sure if I smoked or you know, if I fell back in any of these habits, you know, I could throw it in the washer, I could bleach yeah. it. But I was just like, I have new clothes. Yeah. I want to try not being dirty yeah. and see where that takes me. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a famous quote that says it's easier to work out seven days a week than five days a week. Have you heard that? Mm -hmm. I have. Yeah, right? So the idea is like, sometimes it's easier than not, you know, I, I read a book recently on not drinking. Alan Carr is easy way to stop drinking. Yes. All right, I heard about He this. did the famous cigarette book, didn't yes. he? Yes, yeah, he did. He's a famous I cigarette I remember guy. reading that. It didn't yeah. work for me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I heard this I heard this on a podcast. I think Nikki Glaze, the other comedian, was interviewed on, I think, Joe Rogan. I just read um, This Naked... Oh, there's another Yeah, there's another one about book. alcohol. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Yeah, it, it blew my mind, this idea that you could just like stop drinking from a book. And so I like, yep. read the book just to see what I could say in there. But he makes that point in there is like, if you allow even a little bit yeah. that you're like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, drink at special occasions or I'm just drinking this. He's totally like, agree. Yeah, you're not shifting your identity as a non-drinker. He's yep. like, you either are a non-drinker or you're a drinker. Yep. And there's no difference. Yep. And I thought that was such a, yeah, it was an inter interesting book. I actually would recommend it like to most people. I'm like, even if you don't want to stop drinking, even if, you don't drink at all. Like, I just love the psychology of how your identity shapes your actions. Mm -hmm. uh, just mind blowing. Well, even, even now, I mean, I'm surrounded by people and peers who love cigars. Yeah, yeah. I love the idea of having a cigar, yeah. but I'm also a little scared. Yeah. <laughs> I was such a degenerate smoker. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid if I take one puff yeah. that I might like it too much. Mm. So it's so much easier. And it's, it's awkward sometimes. I'm the yeah. only guy, not doing the, you know, yeah. in a group sitting around a fire pit as everybody's yep. drinking whiskey. I'm the only guy yep. not doing one. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I recently stopped drinking. After reading that book, actually, I stopped drinking. I bet you feel great. Oh, I feel, I, you know, I never drank a lot. And so I don't know if I like that different, but saying I'm not drinking anymore, just period, has simplified that. But yeah, now I find myself once in a while the only guy at the fire pit not drinking. Yeah. So I'm, uh, yeah, I actually, I literally, what I did is I made a list after I got done reading that book. I was like, here's all the reasons I want to drink and all the reasons I don't. And all the reasons I want to drink had one item on it. It's I don't want to be the guy at the fire pit without a drink. Okay. That was actually it. I mean, yeah, I enjoy, you know, a good scotch. Uh, yeah, like I love scotch. I, I enjoy that. But 
Not then, yours. Not yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> not that. Just something a little bit better. Uh, I actually found myself randomly. I'd never heard of Oban or Oban. Yeah. Or you want to say. Yeah. I, I found myself in that town in Scotland, and I'd never drank scotch before ever. And I went to the factory wherever they made Oban scotch and in, uh, in, in Oban, and it was. And you didn't drink. I had never drank scotch anyway. I'd had okay. like whisky. Anyway, and I had some Oban in Oban. They had Oban in Oban. See, this is where it gets yeah. tricky, though, because uh, yeah. now it's not drinking you goes yeah. back to Scotland. Yes, I know. Yeah, it's like I got, I have to while I'm there. You, yeah. can have, you can have an exception. Yeah, you know? I might have an exception. We'll see. But then you open yourself up and you're like, oh, if I'm going to allow it a little bit. So I, know. I don't know why I'm falling on that. I, I never felt like drinking was a problem. I just, I really liked the idea of being all in like you said mm -hmm. i want the white mm -hmm. so i'm wearing white clothes with that area of my life and i'm like i'm gonna stay with the white clothes yeah because once i get a little dirty then i'm yeah i can rely on grace and like you said i can wash it but right now i'm sticking with it yeah. all right dr gary so dr gary was this larger than life character on the ship so he is the head of the hospital and his story was that he was a california surgeon i think santa barbara area and he had heard of this opportunity that he could serve as a surgeon and he signed up for a three-month tour, which is a long time. Yeah. And when I joined the ship, he had been there for 21 years. Oh. So he never went back oh. to his plastic surgery practice. Yeah. Uh, wound up getting married, raising his kids on the ship as they sailed around. Uh, he has some remarkable kids today. I mean, imagine exposing him yeah. to you know 20 countries and sailing up and down the coast of Africa. And I just wanted, you know, I'd signed up for one year, and I just wanted to know everything about this guy. Uh, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was soft-spoken, and he was an unbelievable surgeon. So my job, I guess I forgot to mention this, my job on the ship was to be the volunteer photojournalist. Mm. Now, technically, I was not a photojournalist. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was a pretty good writer, and I was a pretty good hobby photographer. So I knew how to take pictures. And when I was a teenager, I, I wrote for local paper. Qualified. But what was interesting was I had this big mailing list from 10 years of clubs. Mm. So I actually came with an audience. I had about 15,000 emails. And back then, open rates were basically 100%. Yeah. I mean, you sent an email and everybody got it. I got it. an email. <laughs> and everybody got Amazing. it. So you got in, in some ways I convinced them by putting up some photos on a blog of, you know, models in Paris and pretty buildings in Prague and kind of arty stuff. And then some clippings, some newspaper clippings. And, and I'd actually gone to NYU part time and barely squeaked out a degree in communications because it was just the easiest. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really need to go to class to, you know, pull out the C minus or so. So they take me on in this role. The great thing is with this role, I have all access. So I can go anywhere on the ship. And I'm my job is to document every single important thing that happens over this year-long mission. So I have access to put on hospital scrubs and spend nine and a half hours with Dr. Gary, mm. watching him remove a massive facial tumor and sew somebody back together. I had access to, you know, jump on helicopters, Russian helicopters with the United Nations as our doctors would fly to these remote parts of the country. And there'd be, you know, 500 people waiting for our helicopter to land as they'd come from even neighboring countries. So it was a, a really cool experience. And I just tried to spend as much time learning from him as possible. And then he became important so the year, I finished the year, the year stretched into two years because I just didn't know what was next. So I went back. I think there's there's one other moment. Before the ship would come into the port, 
uh, a small advance team would post flyers looking for sick people. I joked, it was kind of like promoting a nightclub, yeah. <laughs> except <laughs> we're promoting a huge triage day where the surgeons would all receive the patients and we would hand out 1,500 surgery cards. So we knew that we had the capacity to change 1,500 people's lives. Cataract surgeries, cleft lips, cleft palates, facial tumors, flesh-eating disease. People had been burned by rebel soldiers during the war. We could reconstruct their faces and their, you know, their limbs. And my third day there, I'll never forget, I woke up at five in the morning, I put on the hospital scrubs. I jump in this convoy of Land Rovers with the doctors and the nurses and with Dr. Gary and, and others. And I learned that the government has given us the football, the soccer arena, this kind of crumbling soccer arena in the center of the city. And I just remember thinking, is it possible that there are 1,500 people with these crazy, you know, deformities? Yeah, yeah. And we, we turn the corner and there's over 5,000 oh, people that are standing in the parking lot waiting for us to open the doors and begin this triage process. And at the end of the second day, we wound up sending 3,000 sick people home. And that hit me really hard. I later learned some of these people had walked for more than a month with their children. Some of them had walked from neighboring countries. They came from Cote d'Ivoire, they came from Guinea, they came from Sierra Leone into this country, and we didn't have enough doctors. So the need was an order of magnitude greater than our resources. So that was kind of a really, that made a big impression on me. In the second year, same thing, another 1,500 surgeries, but I wound up buying a motorcycle just to have a little freedom, like a $400 motorcycle from like one of the old deckhands. <laughs> <laughs> Probably cost me more to fix it up. It was constantly breaking. But I would go into the rural areas and I got off the ship and I got out of the city and I wanted to see how people were living. And of all the things that I saw, I remember seeing people drink dirty water for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I learned that half of the country was drinking diseased, contaminated, dirty water. And then I learned that half of the disease in the country was linked back to that same dirty water. So I had this almost, you know, jumping one level beneath. Here we are putting a Band-Aid on 1,500 people. But underneath that, there's a couple million people drinking poison. Yeah every single day, responsible for 28 different diseases. And at the end of that second year, I am showing Dr. Gary my photos, you know, and I'm saying, Dr. Gary, I met this 13 year old girl. This is her water, it's green. Like there's bugs crawling in it. And I can't believe that she's using this water to drink. She's using this water to bathe. She's using this water to, to cook. And you know, I, this is almost 20 years ago, but I just remember him saying very simply, why don't you go make that your problem then? Mm. And at the time there were a billion people without water. And he gave me this very simple challenge. And, and he said something to the effect of, you know, here we are with all these doctors. He said, if you could just get people clean water, you'd be the greatest doctor in the history of the world. <laughs> like if you could get the most basic need for health met for a billion people, then we wouldn't have 5,000 people standing outside a stadium waiting for us to open the doors to turn 3,000 of them away. So that was so simple. And I was 30 years old at the time, you know, had been so deeply moved by the compassionate work of these doctors and surgeons and the sacrifices they'd made. And then I just had this very simple problem that I had seen. I'd, I'd lived in leprosy colonies. I'd seen all sorts of problems, but it was just 
water. And maybe, you know, one other thing that struck me, I used to sell Voss water in the nightclubs for $10 a bottle. <laughs> and I remember selling 10 bottles to people as they would come in $100 of water and they wouldn't open a single bottle because they're drinking champagne or vodka yeah. instead. So I think there was just something so stark in the contrast of people don't have the most basic need for human life. And then the excess on the other end, we charge $10 for water that doesn't even go opened. Yeah, wild. So water became your thing. I mean, was that right thing. away? Right away. Right away, you said, I'm gonna solve the water thing. I mean, before maybe before we go into, into building charity water, how do you mentally deal with the fact that a problem is so overwhelming. I mean, even just taking the like the the small example of the five thousand people show up and you have to send thirty five hundred of them away. How do you mentally deal with that, knowing that you just can't make an impact on majority of people? Yeah. That day, I remember weeping. I remember I was just devastated. That patient screening. Yeah. Beyond the people that we were turning away, there were people that would come in with these tumors, and we would test them for cancer, and the ones that had benign tumors would get scheduled. And then there were others that were sent to palliative care. And some of these are children, I mean, 15 mm. year old kids. And I just remember the terror in their eyes, you know, knowing they're going to die. I mean, some of them were, were suffocating to death on these tumors, they were coming out of their mouths. And, you know, imagine a volleyball size kind of, you know, fleshy tumor. All this because there was no doctor to go to, no surgeon to go to. So they'd, they'd get a tumor, it would start growing, they'd go to the witch doctor, none of the spells would work. Yeah. And they, they just needed a surgeon, but there was no surgeon available. So they would grow and grow and grow and take over their mouths, take over, you know, parts of their body. So what I learned early on, somebody said, focus on the hope, go focus mm. on this first kid who's scheduled for surgery. And then there's a second and there's a third, and they're actually going to be 1500 people who we're going to be able to help. So I think with water and a billion people at the time it was over a billion people on a 6 billion world population. So when I came back to New York at 30 years old, one in six humans yeah. were drinking bad water. One in six people alive on the planet. So yeah, massive problem. And I think I just tried to apply that same philosophy. Well, could we help one community or one person, then one family, then one community, then the next community? And I mean, I think that's still the approach 17 years later and, you know, 140,000 communities or so. Yeah. Wild, man. All right. So let's, let's talk about building charity water. I mean, there's a million lessons I'm sure we can cover there and we could talk for the next 12 hours on this, but what were some of the key, I guess, moments in the, in the process? I mean, maybe, maybe actually, why don't we do this? Why don't we start at where you're at today? Like what is yeah. charity water? Where's it at? What is it doing? Was it raised? What are you impacting? And then let's go back and reconstruct how you got there. So we're 17 years into this. Okay. Um, we're closing in on a billion dollars raised from a couple million donors around the world. No government money. So the, the movement of Charity Water is really powered by individual donors. Uh, that's kids that send in $8.13 of lemonade money to the office. And it's entrepreneurs you know, who are making eight-figure commitments. The founders of you know the Spotify's and Shopify's and venture capitalists and you know real, really entrepreneurial kind of focus. We've helped seventeen and a half million people get water in about one hundred and forty thousand plus villages uh, across twenty nine countries, and now we raise you know one hundred million a year, which wow. which is a fraction of the ambition and a fraction of what's needed. I will say over the last almost twenty years, the problem now has come down from a billion without water to seven hundred million. 
So we went from one in six people alive on the planet without water to one in 10, mm. almost one in 11. So even as we've grown population, we have been solving the problem. That's cool. So our piece is now 140th of the current problem solved, 17 million in, uh, into 700 million is about two and a half percent of the way there. So, so much more yeah. to be done, but today we'll help about 5,000 new people get water and then tomorrow another 5,000 and, and the next day. So we average about 2 million new people a year now. Wow. Which is what I'm trying to move the needle on every single day. Yeah. How do you get more and more? Is it just, is it just a money thing at this it point? Is. Like, yeah, it is. more it money. Is. You know, the, yeah. look, the, I was on stage making a, a speech last night and I said to the audience, you know, as we all sit here, there's 2,000 people in a room. It's crazy that 700 million people, you know, two times the population of the United States of America are drinking dirty water. And what's even crazier is that we know how to solve this problem yeah. in its entirety. This is not like Parkinson's. This yeah. is not like ALS or pancreatic cancer. This is not like the climate where there's a lot of different... We know how to give every person clean water. There's not a single one of the 700 million people who were scratching our heads saying, no, I just couldn't reach them. They're like too far <laughs> off the grid. So we haven't created the will, the global will to solve this problem. And we haven't mobilized the resources. So I think it's about two of those things. One, not just me and a couple million people at Charity Water saying we want to get this done. Like we need to grow the movement of people saying not on our watch. Like we refuse to live in 2024 in a world where 10% of the world doesn't have the most basic need for human life met. I mean, you know, God bless Elon, but he's looking for water 142 million miles away on Mars. <laughs> like, you know, as you go up into space, we look down at 10% yeah. of our world without this need met. What dollar amount do you think right now? Like you had a, if Elon About 130 shows up. billion. But the problem is we also have to build out the infrastructure. infrastructure yeah. Now, 130 billion, that's 13 cents on one of those several stimulus bills, Yeah, yeah. right? We print a trillion dollars, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's nothing. Oh, we have an emergency. Let's print another trillion dollars. Yeah. So that's it's actually not that, that much money. Oh, yeah. and you, you, you know, you take a war in Ukraine, it's almost, yeah. you know, it's almost enough to give everybody clean water. Wild. And how many more um, lives would that just millions and millions of lives? 700 yeah. million people. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, but as the movement, grow, you know, if you dropped a hundred billion dollars right now, the infrastructure isn't there to actually yeah. go and deliver on the projects. You know, think of it as, let's say you built stadiums and yeah. you're really good at stadiums. And let's say it costs a billion dollars to build a stadium. Okay. Um, well, I can order five and you're going to scale up and maybe you could do five stadiums next year. Okay. And then I say, well, then I'm going to order 10. Okay, and you're gonna scale up your operations. But right now, if you can build $1 billion stadium, I can't ask you to build 100. Yeah, I can't just drop 100 billion and say, all right, now could I please have those yeah. 100 next year? <laughs> so you've got to, the movement needs to grow, the funding needs to grow at the grassroots and, and even at the you know, significant kind of funding levels. And then you're able to hire thousands of people. So more drilling rigs, more technicians, more hydrogeologists out there who can then absorb that capital and turn it into water projects. Go back to the beginning. So I think I had the advantage, maybe like some people listening, although they get uh, your great advice. I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. I mean, I had absolutely no experience running a charity. I had no exposure to, I had exposure to one charity and I was a guy who took pictures of, <laughs> you know, pre and post-op. Yeah. So I had 10 years of nightclub experience. I then took pictures for two years and now I'm gonna start a charity. I think that worked so deeply to my advantage because 
the people that I knew were just everyday people. I was 30 and I knew people who worked at Sephora and Chase Bank and MTV VH1 at the time or for Vogue magazine. And as I started talking to them about what I wanted to do, which was very clear. So if you had come across me 17 years ago, I would have looked you in the eye and said, I'm gonna try to bring clean water to every single person alive before I die. Like it was an all or nothing. It wasn't, I'm gonna go help 10 villages or I'm gonna help a million people. It was everybody in the world is the mission. As far-fetched as that would have sounded, because I was living on a closet floor uh, <laughs> in Manhattan for free rent. Somebody said if I slept on the closet, I wouldn't have to pay rent. Because I I came back broke as well. I'd given all of the money that I had to Mercy Ships, the people that I'd met over those two years in Africa. So, you know, I'm broke. I then find out I'm $35,000 in debt because my nightclub partner hadn't dissolved our little company and or paid tax. So in some ways, it's the most unlikely time to start a charity. I have no experience starting a charity, but I'm talking to everyday people. They love the idea of water, but they didn't trust charities. Yeah, and that's a I, huge problem. I realized there was so much cynicism and skepticism out there when it came to giving your hard-earned money away to a charity. USA Today had done a poll, found 42, 42% of Americans just flat out said we don't trust charities. More recently, there was a shocking study done that found seven out of 10 people believe charities wasted their money. 70% mm. of people believe charities wasted their donations. It's like you have one job, right? Charities are asking people to donate. Do you think that's possible? Like, is there a- Well, some of it is valid. Some yeah, of it is, is absolutely percentage valid. Of, yeah, that charity. I mean, you hear stats like this, like, hey, 80% of their budget went towards, you know, internal stuff or marketing or whatever. And then and we, we judge that. Yeah. But then also they may, like, for example, if you spend, if they hadn't spent the money, maybe they'd make zero dollars, right? So maybe the advertising money needed to come in for the 30%, yeah. right? So like- That's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. We could talk yeah. about it. <laughs> there are some bad actors out there. Yep. And, and at the time, you know, I, I remember, you know, CNN, I think it was Anderson Cooper would go and chase yeah, the yeah. bad charity CEO yep. to the doors of his McMansion, yep. right? He would slam the door in his face and you learned like he hired his cousins and his nephews yeah. and everybody was on the payroll and no money actually went to the cause. And it was a big- direct mail scam or whatever. And then people throw up their hands and say, see, that's why I don't give. Yeah. So I got to just by doing user feedback, ask people, what would the perfect charity look like? What would the business model look like that actually, because you can care about clean water. I mean, nobody was telling me that people should die of bad water. Yeah. And nobody was for humans drinking from swamps, but the system was broken. So the first thing I just kept hearing was, I want to know where my money goes. I want to know, where, I, want, I want all my money to go to help people. There was only one charity that I'd come across that had solved this. And it was a charity in New York City that was started by a billionaire hedge fund manager. And he said, I'm so rich, I will pay all the overhead of my charity. So that if you give any money to my charity, 100% will go right to the mission, which was education. So I remember writing him a letter, you know, this great billionaire hedge fund. He never wrote me back, but I said, this is so smart. There's church and state between the overhead bank account and where all the public donations go. What if I could bootstrap this? So I went down to the bank and I had a couple hundred dollars and I opened up two separately numbered bank accounts with a very simple idea that all of the public money would go in the water account. Yep. And then somehow in his other account, I would convince people to pay for overhead, that it was cool to pay for staff salaries of nonprofit workers, of an office one day, of the flights to Africa and India and Asia as we you know, would go and develop these partnerships and water programs. But I could make this promise that every penny 
every dollar, you know, maybe we would raise money in euros one day, like everything would go straight to the field. So that was the first thing that I did. Then the second thing was kind of this cascading, aha, well, if money's not fungible, then couldn't I build really cool technology to track these small donations mm. and show people the country or the village or the well that $8.13 built? And you know this dates Charity Water, but we were pre-Google Maps. So <laughs> I met the founder of Google Earth as he was building the company. And he said, I'm building Google Earth and you will be able to put up every single well that you ever build, every water project, for free on my new thing called Google Earth. And I was like, this is amazing. So then transparency became this second core idea of if we could tell people that 100% of their money would go, and then we could show them yeah. where their money went, like we would outcompete 99.9% .9 of charities in the world. This would be a, a unique advantage. And we could reinvent or reimagine the entire donation and giving experience. And then the third pillar was, I remember, you know, I was involved in fashion. So I, I got exposed to really beautiful things and beautiful homes and, and high-end events. And I just remember looking at the charitable sector saying, where's the Apple? Yeah. Like, where's the Nike? You know, where's the virgin of charities? You know, charities they kind of suck, like yeah. the websites suck. <laughs> They're asking us to read PDFs. They're shouting at us with statistics. And I remember a, a very famous charity, I won't throw them under the bus, but many years ago, there was a study done and they found that 95% of the PDFs on their website had never received one download <laughs> because people don't want to read PDFs yep. of, of <laughs> statistics. So, you know, so many charities used shame and guilt to peddle their wares. And that's not what Nike did. You know, Nike didn't tell people that they were fat and lazy. Go put away the bowl of Doritos and go for a run. You know, Nike would storytell around people overcoming adversity. Yeah. You know, Nike believes if you have one leg, you can climb Everest. Yeah. You know, if you have one arm, you can win the shot put competition with your other arm. And people would rise to the occasion. They would, you know, they would be inspired to actually go run that first mile. So I really was intentional about trying to build an epic, imaginative, inspiring brand that was focused on joy and fun and opportunity and not shame and guilt. You know, not those Sally Struthers commercials, yeah. you know, with the flies landing on the kid's face in slow motion as he locks eyes with the screen and the 800 number yeah. comes. So I put those three things together, 100% prove where the money goes, build a really beautiful brand. And then the most important thing is we would only work with locals in each of these countries. So I just believed for the work to be culturally appropriate, for it to be sustainable, we would have to create thousands of jobs and no dude like, you know, that looks like me should be running around Malawi <laughs> with a hard hat on pretending that I'm operating a drilling rig or that I have any business becoming a hydrogeologist. Yeah. You know, there's a quote in the book that I wrote down here that I liked a lot. You, you, you were quoting uh, journalist Nicholas Kristof. Yes, said, Toothpaste yes. is peddled with far more sophistication than life-saving work of aid groups. So true. Yeah. Like Colgate and yeah. Crest are better marketers. Yeah, they're way better. Than people who are saving lives. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the storytelling efforts that you've done with Charity Water to raise money? I know you've done a number of events and galas and all that. Uh, what's been some of your favorite things you've done? Well, day one was really proving the model. And what was fun for, for that, you know, as I've reflected on it later, our first party was in a nightclub. Mm. So I got to go back and almost, you know, redeem the thing that I had done for 10 years. 
I called up the hottest club in town that was about to open. I got the owners to give it to me for free. They donated open bar for an hour. And I just oh. emailed everybody and said, come to my 31st birthday party, but you have to donate $20 to Charity Water on the way in. And 100% of the money will go. So we had this proof of concept. So 700 people come. There's $15,000 of cash in this big plexi box at the end of the night. I can't do this everywhere, but I can do this with you. I remember there was a weed dealer <laughs> that dropped $500 of cash into that box. And he said, this is the first charitable gift I have ever made in my entire life. But I believe this $500 is actually going to help people get water. Mm. And at the end, you know, I remember we, I we audited it. We like laid out all the money. We took pictures of the money. You know, a bunch of people were signing $15,621. And then we took 100% of that to Uganda and we built our first well. And then we sent the photos and the GPS coordinates and video back to the 700 people. And we said, you came to a party, you gave $20 and here are the people drinking clean water because of this collective action. Mm. And it was so powerful. And we just said, well, can we just do that on repeat? If that is the DNA of the organization, can we just, just run that cycle over and over again until we've gotten everybody clean water? Yeah. Storytelling, I think people give to people over causes and people connect to stories of people rather than statistics. So over time, I think it's just very natural for me. I'm a, I'm a storyteller, but I'm a visual storyteller. So in the early days of Charity Water, I'm trying to do two things. I mean, I got to go find people to pay for the overhead. Yeah. And then I got to go peop find people to give money to these water projects. I did that by making 10 to 15 presentations a day on my laptop, where I would just open up a laptop and I would click through photos of I, that I'd taken. I would start with the Mercy Ships, you know, the before and afters. I would then show them the water that I found out people were drinking. I would show them a well being drilled. I would show them people getting clean water afterwards. And then I would invite them to be a part of it, either helping me hire my first employee, you know, or get our first office check paid for, for rent, or, hey, could you build a whole community? Yeah. And it was just doing that thousands of, I mean, I'm still doing it today. Yeah. I mean, I think I- You did it with me. I did it a couple hundred times yeah. last year. Yeah. And, and it's just constantly telling true stories. In the book, I mean, I guess I could do, there's a story of a woman that probably impacted me the most. And, and she was a 13-year-old girl in Ethiopia and she would walk every day for dirty water. And at the end of one of these walks, you know, eight hours of walking, she slips and she falls and she spills all of her water. And to make things worse, she breaks this clay pot that she was holding the water on her back. And this 13-year-old girl is in such despair that instead of going back for more water, she hangs herself from a tree. Mm. So they find her body with the noose around her neck and this clay pot broken next to the tree. And, you know, I remember hearing that story, this is years ago, and just thinking like, that's not true, you know, like Googling Snopes or... Yeah, yeah. But then thinking, if that really is true, I want to experience it. I want to internalize it. I want to walk in the footsteps. I want to stand in front of that tree. I want to take a picture of that tree that once held a 13-year-old's body. And and I just kind of believe like that would piss other people off like it pissed me off. Like yeah. I don't want to live in a world where a 13-year-old girl has to walk eight hours a day and then because she slips and falls carelessly, you know, is in such great despair 
that she takes her own life. And I wound up you know, living in that village for a week, finding out it was true, getting to know her family and her friends and walking in her footsteps and standing in front of that tree at the very end, visiting her grave, you know, meeting the priest who gave her funeral service. That is a, that's a tough story, but there are so many real stories of yeah. people who are trapped in this problem. I mean, I've, I've been with people who have lost family members to crocodile attacks. Wow. I mean, nobody listening <laughs> woke up this morning, like when you, you know, brushed your teeth yeah. or walked over the refrigerator, you know, to, to release the water from the fridge, you know, thought about maybe getting dragged off by a crocodile at a quickly flowing river yeah. in East Kenya or in Southern Malawi, but this is the reality for so many people. And, you know, when it is Helen or Leta Kiros or, you know, Mariama who is telling that story in their own words, it's very powerful. And it brings people into the need and it also moves people to want to help. Yeah. Like we, we want to stop that. So you know, we've made over a thousand videos now at the organization. It's just story after story after story. We go and we meet someone and say, hey, would you please tell your true story of your experience? And some of them are amazing stories. I mean, it's still I, one of my, my best stories is this woman named Helen who gets clean water for the first time in her life. And we ask her how her life is different post water. And she just simply says, she said, well, for the first time in my life, I'm beautiful. Mm. And we're like, what do you mean? Of course you're this, she's like this beautiful 50 year old woman. She said, well, I'm beautiful now because I finally have enough water to wash my face and my body every day. And before, because I never had enough water and I had to walk so far, she said, I always put my family first. So I was using the water to wash my kids' bodies, my kids' school uniforms. My husband was using it. I was gardening. I was cooking for my family. She said, I was always dirty because that's what Ugandan women do. We sacrifice, we put our families first. And she said, now I just, I have all the water that I want. She said, look <laughs> at me, I'm, I'm beautiful. I'm smart. I'm looking so smart. <laughs> That's awesome. And she could wash her clothes and she could wash her and, and water gave her dignity. That told in her words is, is very, very powerful. Yeah. When, you, when you see this woman, this regal woman who has made sacrifices. And then, you know, it all comes back to this thing that so many of us just take for granted because of the conditions we were born into. I've never had to drink dirty water. I was born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia. My kids will never have to drink dirty water. But 10% of the world was born into a completely different environment. They've never known this thing that we have. Wow. So one thing on the show that we do that's a little unique is every episode, 100% of the revenue from the ads that we generate goes directly to a charity of the guest choosing. Uh, I think probably it's pretty obvious what charity we're giving this uh, week's episode money to. <laughs> okay. You have another charity you want to throw out there. Uh, but I just wanted to give a, a room here to play that ad so that way we can get some money generated for you guys. That sound good? Awesome. All right. All right. So here are three truths that I've learned about business. Number one, most companies are wildly inefficient. Number two, that inefficiency is caused by not so great leadership. Number three, this is the hard part. Your company can only keep growing if you, the leader, keep growing into a higher version of yourself. And that is why if you're a CEO or high-level leader, I strongly recommend you connect with my friend, Peter Awood of Whitestone Coaching. Peter built multiple seven-figure businesses. He's a good friend of mine. He was guest number 18 on this very show. And business-wise, he can help you become more efficient, more profitable, all while spending more time in your own unique zone of genius. And life-wise, he can also help you enjoy more stability, more freedom, get your priorities straight when it comes to health and connecting with your kids and your spouse and your friends. Look. 
Personalized coaching is the best shortcut to success that I found, period, in any and all areas of my life. So here's how to connect with Peter and Whitestone Coaching. Text the word Better Life, all one word, to 55444. Again, you can connect with Peter and start becoming a legendary leader today by texting Better Life, one word, to 55444. All right, man. I want to go a little bit before we get out of here. I want to touch on some of the leadership lessons that you learned, yeah. right? Building a charity is not all probably that different from building any organization, learning how to lead, learning how to inspire, learning how to guide people, mentor people. So what are some of the key, maybe one or two key leadership lessons that you've learned over the years in, in trying to build a large organization? I think I know what I'm good at, which is not most things. <laughs> and, and over time, I have really learned how to hire the smartest people to do these important jobs of which I have no proficiency or really any appetite mm. to learn. You know, whether that's incredible CFOs over time, my partner uh, who led all of our water projects for 11 years at the organization and built up a network of over 2000 locals and 55 partners in the vetting and the auditing and the sustainability systems. I think I'm really good at giving people a lot of, hiring fantastic people and then giving them a lot of autonomy. Mm and then trying to focus on the things that I do well, which is storytelling, and now asking people for money. Yeah. In the early days, I was a terrible fundraiser. I, I didn't like it. I, you know, made me uncomfortable because it could make somebody else uncomfortable. I think now the, the more the organization has grown and just the more experience, I mean, we have 17 years of experience across 140,000 villages. Like it is world-class. Yeah. I mean, I give money to my own organization. I mean, it is, I'm so proud of the team and and believe me, we made lots of mistakes. I mean, we, we have, and I'm sure we'll continue to make mistakes, but I'm really doing less and less and less as the organization scales and delegating, you know, more to real subject matter experts. So I think that's, that's one thing. That's a good one. It is, you know, <laughs> The storytelling is really, people have tried to copy Charity Water and they've tried to copy the 100% model and they've tried to copy the brand and the design. And, you know, I think we could be, I actually think we could be almost as successful without the 100% model. Mm. And if the brand didn't look quite as good, I think the one thing I wouldn't want you to take away is our innate, just desire to continually tell stories, stories that move people from apathy to action. And that's really just the goal. Look, I mean, the challenge is that nobody listening has experienced this problem. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe you have a couple of people listening who emigrated from, from Pakistan or from Malawi or from Rwanda or from you know, West Bengal and India. So maybe there are some people that grew up, it, it would be you know, less than a 10th of 1%. Yeah. If we're talking about cancer, 100% of people yeah. that are listening have been affected by cancer, yep. have lost a loved one, have lost somebody. a friend. Yeah. You know, homelessness, this is something we see. You know, you can't travel around the country without being confronted with these issues. So 0% of people. So I am, I have to start by getting people aware of an issue, then inspired to take some sort of personal action to engage with that issue. And then, you know, have this world-class organization that is best in class at delivering the intervention and then going back to them with that closed loop saying, here is what you did. Here's what you accomplished. It's a tall order to do. And, 
you know, the more I focus on that. So I think about product. I think about the donor experience. I think about the storytelling. I think about if I'm going to ask somebody for a huge amount of money, why would they give? I mean, if I'm, if I'm asking a donor for seven figures or even eight figures, I know them way better than they think I know them. I mean, I've listened to 20 hours of them talking on podcasts. I've read everything there is to know about them. I'm trying to get inside their head and say, why would they care? They might care about this because they're passionate about education. And then I would say, well, one in the three schools in the world don't have water. So, hey, let's go get a million students clean water. They might be passionate about women and girls and elevating them. And I would talk about the time that women are wasted. They might be passionate about health. So the next chapter for me is just doing fewer things with the most intensity that I I can muster. What happens to Charity Water do you think should, you know, you get hit by a bus? Well, I used to be responsible for 80% of the revenue and now I'm responsible for 20%. Okay. So, and, and I'd like that to be, yeah. you know, I'd like that blend to steep, keep going. And you obviously know, you're that, not the one drilling the wells and you're not the one doing that. Oh, so you're I've, not I've never, never been doing that. Yeah, no. yeah so. Yeah, that, that would miss a beat. And, and, and one of the things that has been really transformative to the organization is we have a subscription giving program now called The Spring that is made up of you know over 65,000 people in 149 countries. They give an average of about $30 a month. They don't need anything from me. Yeah. They are not signed up because Scott asked them for money yeah. or they met me. They're signed up for the mission. And you know it's what, a couple Spotify's a month or a Netflix and a yeah. half. So the more we can develop products like that, I spend almost all of my time on the overhead side because yeah. it is still at scale. Yeah. We have 131 families and entrepreneurs who pay the overhead. So I've got to keep those 130 families engaged, make sure they continue to give or even upgrade their giving, you know, as they come into greater wealth or as they come into greater understanding of of what we're doing. I'm taking them to Africa. I'm taking their kids, you know, often on trips. And, you know, that's something I can do uniquely well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you you feel like the bottleneck is more in the I mean, the two have to go together, right? The admin side and the operation side. Yeah. But where's the where's the more difficult? It's always there? harder to get someone to pay for staff salaries. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, it depends on the type. Sure, so yeah. all the entrepreneurs. See, I would, I, yeah, I was see, like, I love the idea of paying the, for the admin. The entrepreneurs stuff. love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my wife, all of our my wife's yeah. and my giving, it's all unrestricted. Yep. You know, we will find a charity and say, use our money to pay for what no one else yeah. wants to pay for. Yes. I don't need my name on something. Yep. You know, I I want to pay for the phone bill. Yeah. If that's a if you're a well-run organization. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think the other just leadership lesson that I've learned is I really believe things take time. Yeah. And I remember seeing the 27 year stock chart of Amazon. Mm. Had Jeff Bezos quit in year 20, yeah. he'd only created 7% of the company's value. Wow. So the first two decades, 7% of market cap. Mm. 93% was created in years 21 through 27. Now he kept investing, right? And, and putting the money back in the business and just staying the course and learning and learning and building the movement. Remember the Fire Phone? I mean, they were disasters. <laughs> yeah. There were things that didn't work. Then there are things that did work. Amazon Web Services, uh, Amazon Prime, right? So, you know, we're in year 17. I've actually showed my team that graph, yeah. you know, cause it's just a really boring flat line. Yep. Warren Buffett's and, wealth is the same way. That's right. Just- It it goes hyperbolic at the end. So we are now riding 17 years of credibility, Mm. of experience, of mistakes made, uh, of learnings. And I really believe, you know, we're well poised 
for both the grassroots movement of people who can give 30 or $40 and then, you know, seven, eight figure entrepreneurs who just want to make a, a, an outsized impact. Yeah. And we have those products now that, you know, we can even customize. Yeah. Well, it's one thing, you know, when I talked to you, you know, I'm one of the many calls you did, so I don't expect you to remember this, but we talked about the Better Life Tribe. What we, mm -hmm. you know, we exist, we give away 100% of profits. I don't want to take a salary from it because I got all my real estate. So it's not like I'm poor me, but like I'm doing fine. But all of our profits that we generate go directly towards charity. And specifically, we've really picked the idea of uh, against human trafficking. Like, yeah. the, uh, how do we put money towards that? And we talked about that. And one thing you brought up to me, similar to what you just mentioned a minute ago, is Water is the is a root cause of a lot of problems. It so is, including human trafficking. Including human trafficking. And so very much like we, at, you know, the Better Life Tribe want to be part of the well. Like I want to be yeah. a part of that. I want to help you support, especially the operations. Because again, we're entrepreneurs. We love that stuff. Yeah. So we definitely have plans to to do that, assuming that we continue to keep growing like we are. It's a fun game to play, if you can call it a game, where because there's no shareholders in our organization, yeah. like we're just like we're gonna generate as much profit as we possibly yeah. can and then it's gonna be a fun game of like you know figuring out who, who it goes to and the the impact and yeah. then the, you know it's not it's the impact of the whole community yes yeah it's making it's Every, a shared yeah it's everybody's story yeah and a shared impact i love it yeah i, I think, think it's so a, cool there's a world of what i call capitalism fueled charity that hasn't taken root the way that like i hope it will where there's business like i mean you know we talked about this on the phone then it, like generating 10 million dollars of you know a value like to go get people to donate $10 million. That's a lot of conversations, but one entrepreneur can build a $10 million business and sell it not easily, but it's doable. It's totally yeah. within the realm or in the world of real estate. I mean, I buy a hundred million dollar business uh, building every few months. We'll buy, you know, hundred million dollars of real estate every few months that will turn into $150 million over the next five to 10 yeah. years. That's $50 million. We just created a group of, you know, a few dozen halfway, you know, intelligent people. So I love the idea of taking people, business owners yeah. that are entrepreneurs that can think they've been given the gift from God, I believe, to create wealth, yep. but not for themselves. And then we take that, we build businesses, we build charities that are run like businesses, and then we donate that money. And so that's the that's the model I'm pushing for the rest of my life. I figured now. Well, let's yeah. let's sign some people up now yeah. to do it. It's, that's what we're doing, man. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. And I think you've seen this, but if you go down just the path of profit, there's yeah. never enough. Yeah. There's just never, <laughs> never enough. Someone is always richer. Somebody yep. always has a nicer, yeah. you know, car, boat, plane. And I've, I've been able to see this up close and, and personal. You know, I've had proximity to 30 billionaires yeah. and the most alive people often come is when they're giving. Yeah, is 100% when, agreed. Yeah. is when you're asking yourself, how do I use my time and my talent and my money in the service of others and not in the service of myself? My life's mission is like, there's an underlying thing of really trying to get people addicted to generosity, Yeah, you know, addicted to giving. You know, that's why I called the organization Charity Water. Charity means love. It means to help mm. your neighbor in need and get nothing in return. So I thought we need more people moving towards charity, not throwing up their hands saying, ah, see that scam. Yeah. You know, we need more people moving towards the idea of compassion. And I mean, as you found out when you wrote a big check last year, it's really fun. Yeah, it you know, you can fun, impact yeah. a lot of people's lives. You can impact the charity. My goal is to one day, I'd like to write a million dollar check personally to yeah. a charity because somebody did it for me. Yeah. And, you know, I gave away the book advance and, and we've given, but I, at some point in my life, beyond the billion dollars raised, yeah. I'd like to personally. Yeah you know, do that. And, and I'm way more animated by that than what I would buy for a million dollars. Yeah. 
you know, to, to say, oh, if I had a million dollars, I can't wait to go buy this thing. Yeah. I'd much rather be inspired to have it to then give it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's there's no I don't think there's there's not much greater joy in life. I don't know if there's anything that's more joyful than being able to give money away and and see the impact that it makes. So yeah, that's why again the transparency and seeing hey my money through Charity Water went directly here and that's powerful. So uh, speaking of that, where if people want to join, whether it's the sure. spring, the well, what 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 are the options people have for giving? So here are the products because okay, I really think of it as products. Okay, Forty dollars yeah. gives one person clean water. Okay, so that's one time. Forty dollars a month gives one person clean water a month. Ten thousand dollars as a whole community. Mm-hmm. And there are people that kind of do all those. You know, my wife and I now are up to a community. Yeah. So we do at least one well every yeah. single year and people can choose the location of the country. You get to see kind of the completion, the photo on the GPS. And then obviously the well is the 130 families. We have a great video on the spring.com that's had okay. over hundred million views. So if people wanna just kind of see what it looks like, you know, it's one thing to describe it, but to yeah. see what it looks like when a well is drilled and 500 people are celebrating and dancing and splashing in the clean water, or to see what the problem looks like, um, you can go to thespring.com and check out the video. Awesome, man. And just out of curiosity, the well, for those people who are listening who are who are it's 100 able, a year. 100K a year. Is the, is the okay. minimum level, and people sign up for three years. Okay. So that's how we are able to plan cash flow. So we know yeah. how much cash we have now, and then how much is coming in for the next two years. Smart. Yeah, there's definitely people listening it, who can 70, do that, so. 75% are entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, if I, I look bet, at the 100%. theme, it's yeah. people that have built their own businesses and know your organization is only as good as the talent you're able to recruit yep. and then retain. Yeah, And we pay people well. And then we have people that have come from Google. They've come from Twitter. They've come from Airbnb. Many of them made some money and they're willing to you know, to make sacrifices. They're yeah. willing to work for purpose. Just one crazy stat. We hired 36 people last year at HQ. We had 13,650 applicants. Wow. I think the acceptance rate was 0.012. Harvard and MIT are 5%. Yeah, wow. So all that to say, not how great the brand is, although I think, you know, there are people that want to work for Charity Water, but people want their work to matter. Yeah. You know, there is a a desire for purpose. If I'm going to slave away 50 or 60 hours every week, you know, what am I making? What am I building? And I think, you know, you've got entrepreneurs who are listening, who hopefully are saying, I am building wealth. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to take care of, uh, but I also am going to take care of needs in the world, in my local community or my global community. So the more people get signed up for, you know, whether it's a 10% tithe or whether it's even, you know, we know people who reverse tithe. Yeah. You know, I know people who give away 90%, keep 10% and, you know, they're happy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know people have capped their income. I know this one, this one family has given us over $10 million Jeez. over the last decade. And I think they capped their income at 180 a year. Okay. Wow. wow. And it's just, that's yeah. it. That's all they need. That's what they need. Bought their house in cash, couple cars. Like, yeah, uh, I think he finally got a Tesla three <laughs> for <laughs> his wife. I think he drives an old, like an old beater and wow. they are just, it is a joy for them to yep. make money to give. And, you know, that's inspiring. I mean, that's the yeah. generosity that... <laughs> yeah, that is inspiring. All right, man, we got to get you out of here. Normally I have a bunch of questions at the end, but I'm just going to bypass most of them and just ask you, uh, I guess, kind of the final question. Two final ones. Where, what are you excited for? Like what's coming up for Charity Water or yourself personally? And then the lastly is uh, where can people find you social media wise, website wise? I think I'm excited about abundance and radical generosity. I don't know if I told you this when we had our call, but I asked someone last year for $10 million. And this was a, an entrepreneur of a company that uh, we have in our probably home screen. Uh, and 
you know, I knew this entrepreneur could make a gift like this. And it was in the music business. And I, I, I made a really beautiful proposal. The proposal was a record. And on the record, there were tracks of wells being drilled and children singing mm. as they got clean water for the first time. And I wrote a, you know, I think a, a pretty intentional letter, which was the, the record. So it was a $10 million proposal. And the, uh, the entrepreneur received it and sat with his wife and talked about it. And he came back to me and he said, I have only one question. Why did you ask me for so little? <laughs> and I said, well, because I didn't have the guts to ask you for 40 million, mm -hmm. which is what it would cost to give 1 million people water. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'll do 40 million then. Wow. Give me 10 years. He said, I can send 4 million right now. Wow. So that idea of, man, I wasn't thinking big enough. Yeah. Bro, I thought 10 million was <laughs> like, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. So that is, that did, and then I went out and I asked two people for 50 million after that. And they both said yes to 50 million with that mm. seed over a decade, right? So a lot of people yep. actually that could do $5 million a year. And at the end of a decade, know that 1 million people yeah. have water. That's 50 stadiums full of people. Like you sold out Madison Square Garden 50 nights in a row and you still can't yeah. even put a million people. So I'm really excited about what's possible. There's a lot of wealth out there. There are a lot of young people in our community who are creating wealth. Um, that donor's first gift to me was $10,000. Mm. He was building a company. We had a 13 year relationship, went public and saw what we had done for over a decade. There was a high level of trust, uh, had actually come to the field with me. So I'm, I, yeah. I, I am really excited about trying to take everything we've learned and all of the experience and really going for it, thinking even bigger than I've been thinking. And I typically think pretty big. Amazing. All right, man. Where do people follow you on social media and your uh, companies? Just Charity Water mm -hmm. and I'm Scott Harrison. All right. Easy enough. Appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And that is the show. Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of A Better Life with Brandon Turner. I hope you enjoyed the insights and the wisdom uh, brought to you today on this show. If you found value in this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, your feedback actually does help us improve the show. We look at the feedback, I look at the feedback, and we can reach more people with our message of living a better life. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow me on social, Beardy Brandon. And hey, before I go, this show is all about the habits, actions, and beliefs that can give you a better life. But in case you're interested and you want to know my opinion on what it takes to live the best life ever, and that includes some of my kind of weird spiritual beliefs maybe, check out abetterlife.com slash bestlife, abetterlife.com slash bestlife. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time on A Better Life with Brandon Turner.